welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Well, we have made it to 50 episodes. I cannot believe it. Unbelievable. I didn't think we'd make it to 10, quite frankly. Right. (laughs) But (laughs) we made it to 50. We started this podcast the fall of 2020. Mm -hmm. So uh, over two years ago. And since that time, we've had 50 episodes. We've had numerous guests um, from all over the country and uh, Canada. We've had two guests who uh, teach in Canada. So uh, we had listeners from all over the country. So thank you so much for listening, uh, for writing uh, messages to us on Facebook or through our email, which is notedoctorspodcast at Uh, Mm gmail.com. But it's been a great ride. We have learned so much. Um, Honestly, like this is why we do it so that we can learn and get better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Totally. But so we thought for our 50th episode to bring back our very first guest, who was none other than the Dr. Jennifer Snodgrass, who is an incredible music theorist, incredible pedagogue. And she was our first guest and where she talked about her book um, on teaching music theory, where she went around the country and interviewed and observed all sorts of folks, including our own Jen Weaver um, (laughs) in the classroom. And we thought that Uh, we would have her back on to talk about what's going on in her life, her changes, and also just um, the wisdom and passion that she has for music theory and just for teaching and mentoring students is is such an inspiration, I think. And so we just loved getting back to to talk with her. And um, it was great. It was a great conversation, a great way to spend our 50th uh, episode. She's the best. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's, uh, read a little bit about uh, uh, Jenny. Will do. Jennifer Snodgrass is the academic director in the School of Music at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee, where she also teaches music theory and aural skills to undergraduate music majors enrolled in the classical, commercial, and musical theater programs. Snodgrass has received several awards in relation to excellence in undergraduate education, including the UNC Board of Governors Excellence in Teaching Award and the SGA Outstanding Professor Award. She was also named an official quarter finalist for the Grammy Foundation Music Educator Award. Snodgrass has published research in numerous journals and has three published textbooks, including Teaching Music Theory, New Voices and Approaches from Oxford in 2020, Contemporary Musicianship from Oxford, two editions there, 2016 and 2021, and Fundamentals of Music Theory from Pearson, uh, two editions there as well, 2013 and 2019. Snodgrass is the past editor for the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy and the assistant director of the Gail Boyd de Stwolinski Center for Music Theory Pedagogy. Yeah, how do you say that last name? I don't know, but I did my best. (laughs) And Jenny's just like the best human. Like, oh, she's wonderful. So stick around. We're here for the students. And every decision that we make has got to go back to that in some way. Is this decision that I'm making about should this event come to campus good for the students? Is me adding another section and having to work with the budget to get that section taught, is that best for the student? Whatever I have to do, that goes back to my mind, that's me. Is it going to help my faculty teach better, do better, learn better? It's going to help my students learn better, play better. So today our special guest is Jenny Snodgrass. Jenny, we are so pleased to have you back on to the podcast. You were, of course, our first guest back in 2020, and now we are on our 50th episode, so we wanted to bring you back. But things have changed since we last talked to you back in 2020, so maybe you could fill us in and our listeners in on kind of the things that have been going on uh, in your life. So... um I am currently the academic director and professor of music theory here at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, And in that job, a lot of people ask me, what is it, academic director? What is that? And it's kind of like 
a chair plus meets academic dean that meets everything curriculum and mentorship of faculty, hiring all faculty, all the day-to-day -day things that have to do with classroom teaching and curriculum, getting the people in place, getting the students in place, all that is part of my job. So that is what I do here, as well as teach two theory classes. Wow, it's a big wow. job. It's a very big job. <laughs> I'm glad you found an hour to talk with us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what has the transition been like um, <laughs> from where you were at, because you were at um, a state university. I was. And, and now you're at a, a private uh, private institution. So has there been any kind of surprises in that, oh, in that yes. change? So many, you know, I had no intentions and I, and I say this very publicly, I had no intentions of leaving. There's a, there's an article coming out, um, next week. It's coming out in inside higher ed about why, why this happened, because I had so many people just asking me, asking me, and in mm. true research fashion, I'm like, I'm just going to write it. So it got picked up by inside higher ed. It'll be out next week. But I think um, I had no intentions of going into administration. And so um, I love teaching. It is, it is who I am and it is, continues to be who I am. So when uh, Lipscomb called, at first I'll be honest, I said, no, why would I, why would I do that? Um, you know, I was running a successful grad program. I was happy. I was teaching my classes. I knew exactly what I was doing every single day. But, um, after thinking about a couple of days, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go check it out. Um, they were looking for someone to, to be the academic type. So um, when I got here, um, what I figured out was for my interview was I just love the people and I love this town. Mm -hmm. Nashville is a place where there's so much music going on and the School of Music here at Lipscomb um, is all musicians. So it's both um, commercial music, classical performance, musical theater, all in together in this large school of music under the College of Entertainment Arts. So, you know, down, down the sidewalk for me are four Disney animators and our students work with the scores on the animation. So I've always been very collaborative in nature. So when I came for my interview and saw all that happening, I just, I just got really excited about that potential. And um, I did a lot of soul searching and did um, actually wrote out my strengths and teachings on there, but so is organization and so is leadership. I mean, I've been running the PED conferences, I've run the journal, mm -hmm. I've done all that kind of stuff. And I love to make good things great. I know that about myself. Like, so when I saw that, okay, well maybe, maybe this is the next step in my career in a city where I was been doing re I've been doing research in Nashville for almost 10 years now. So I knew the community, I knew the studios, you know, it was just a matter, I just didn't have to drive seven hours anymore. And I have lunch with these people. And, you know, if I wanna go sit in a session to learn about musicianship in, from a producer side of thing, I just walk down the street or walk across campus because that's just what happened. So the person that has the office next door to me has 15 Grammy Awards. You know, and so these are the people I work with, these amazing artists in, you know, whether it's in a classical, um, musical theater, Christian contemporary, gospel, country, all of that. But I'm here to like help the academic side and like fill out some forms. And I'm being honest to my note doctor friends here. So I'll <laughs> fill out a form and just on curriculum, you know, it takes me like five minutes. And they'll go, Jenny, oh my gosh, you're so, you're brilliant. And I'm like, yeah, you have like eight Grammys. <laughs> <laughs> that was a curriculum form. But I just, that just makes it really, really fun for me to be in the middle of, of this environment where all music mm -hmm. is yeah. championed and mm -hmm. all thoughts like are championed. That. And being yeah. in a town where I can go see Weird Al and Vince Gill at the Ryman and the next day go hear an amazing symphonic work. Like it's just, that's something I really wanted in my life. So um, it's a lot of fun. It's very, very busy. So what's different between a state school and a private school? And one of the things is there's a real sense of um, a lack of some of the red tape that I was used to in a state school where I'd had to get 12 signatures. Now I maybe need three. 
And the biggest difference mm -hmm. is I walk to the administration building to get that signature. <laughs> like I literally can walk, you know, the provost knows who I am and I can just walk and say, I need some, some guidance on this. It's a small school, about 4,000, um, with about 170 music majors. And um, that's one of the things that, that I have enjoyed. Um, of course, there's not as many, uh, as much research funding as I'm used to, but I just had a meeting this afternoon with the Center for Teaching and Learning about getting some undergraduate research funding and, and what that would look like. And so um, I think a private school also is very, very interdisciplinary, more than I was used to. So the fact that we work with film and animation, and I just had coffee with the college education person talking about some research. I mean, that's, that's something that's a little different because it was just, it's easy. At App, I did it. I had all those collaborations going on, but it took a little bit more work. So I missed the funding mm -hmm. aspect and maybe some of the resources, but Nashville, if you've ever been here, it is the most social place I've ever been in my life because everything, record deals, I've seen it done, record deals, management deals, class, figuring out course, it's all done over a cup of coffee and a meal. Mm -hmm. And a lot is done over barbecue, I mean a, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so I will, I'll sit there and it's been a, it's been an adjustment for me because I'm just such a go, go, go person. Like they don't take out their phones. They sit there here in Nashville and have a conversation with you, whatever it is, whether it's about academic or whether it's about engineering, they, they go out for lunch and it's an hour and 30 minute lunch and you have their undivided attention. And it's really mm. And that's the industry side. It's really had an effect on me since I've been here about the importance of relationships and taking the time mm -hmm. to really listen instead of making decisions quickly and just, you know, on the fly, like taking the time to listen. The music industry here does an excellent job at that. Excellent. Mm -hmm. We can learn a lot from it. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And you're right. Private school life, like the DBU president sometimes comes to my Christmas concerts at the symphony. Yeah. So I know what you're saying, like everybody kind of knows everybody. Right. And it's some things are easier. Like I decided we wanted to overhaul our theory degree. So my colleague and I put our head together. We came up with a proposal and within like six months it was done. It was right. through the curriculum committee. It was done. So, yeah. We teach more though. I mean, I'm yes. being honest to the Yes, we do. Like, we do teach a lot, and even me, with mm -hmm. my large, my large role here, you know, I still teach two classes. I still still teach six hours a week, and, right. you know. And theory class today was right in my office because we're they're setting up technology in our classroom. I'm so excited about that, but new technology, and it's like, all right, well, we'll just be in our classes because my class is small enough. They cap it at like 14, mm -hmm. and I love that because I really know my students. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, small classes are great. So a little bit ago, you wrote an article for, um, I think it was Chronicle, wasn't it? It was Inside, Inside Higher, Higher Ed. Ed. Inside uh -huh. Higher. Oh, that's right. Inside Higher Ed. And it was the seven hard truths and a few lies <laughs> about graduate school, right? <laughs> um, so could you tell us more about that article? What, what are those truths? Well, I'll tell you, you know, when I wrote this, um, it really was, and I tell this to everybody, it was a love letter to my graduate students. I had no intentions of publishing it. So I was running a graduate program at Appalachian and um, I kept in touch with all my graduates for years and years, like most of us do. And so they would send me texts at night and be like, this is happening, I don't know how to handle it, I don't feel comfortable going to talk to my mentor at whatever school they had gone to for their, for their doctoral program. And so I just sat down one day and I just said, you know what? I'm going to tell you some things that people want you to believe and what's true based on my own experience. And I wrote it out and I um, was teaching a class and I handed it out, the preliminary version of this. I handed it out to the students and I said, I want to talk about this. And just before you go on to graduate degree or before you go get that first job, I want to have an honest conversation. And to be honest, I went back and forth about putting my real name on it. I mean, I write mm -hmm. some things under a pseudonym. I mean, some of you know that, but mm -hmm. um, I won't tell you what that is on this podcast, my <laughs> pseudonym. But I, I just, I don't know what hit me. I, you know, COVID changed so much, but 
for everyone, but part of it, I just wanted my students to have a dose of that it's hard and to watch out for these things. And when I wrote it, I wasn't talking about one thing in particular, like any of my time at any school, but a lot of it's about the stories that I'm hearing from my students going on. So the truths, like for me, that, you know, they, they're being told they're going to get a job, it's going to be a tenure track, you're going to be in this great town. Well, we know that's not true. I mean, I, I have a picture of me back behind, behind here of me singing at a bar in Nashville when I was 15. This town's had a hold on me in a very long time. And it took me this long to get here, so to live here. But so some of the truths also, you know, faculty members represent change. So it was a junior faculty member that I had known mm -hmm. a long time that, you know, has all these amazing ideas and really amazing. And she was at a university where when she was hired, she, they were all about it. And she got there and they're like, don't say anything until you get tenure. Mm -hmm. And so she, she's like, I don't know if I can stay at this university because of the way that I'm feeling. And I know that she's, you know, contemplating finding something else and they're going to miss out on a, on a great person with really good ideas. So, I mean, just looking at some of the truths right now, the imposter syndrome never goes away. I, I, I mean, that's been written and written about, mm. but no matter how successful you are, there still are times that you're like, I, am I, am I really capable of this? Am I, why did they hire me? Or, you know, how long am I going to have to prove myself? And so I felt like for my students, specifically that one, that one's number four, um, that we still feel that way. I was in a writing group a year ago and we had an honest conversation about how we're still trying to please our dissertation advisors 20 years later. <laughs> like, does my dissertation advisor approve of my research? Well, I mean, he does, but like, I don't need to worry about that. So I think, I think that was some of the things and that's how it came to be is I love this part about do not confuse flattery with support because I think mm -hmm. my graduate students and those that have gone to other graduate programs that I mentored would say, you know, they're telling me I'm the best at this, so therefore I'm going to pick up X, Y, Z and do this, this, this more, you know? And I'm like, is that setting you up to be successful? Are you going to finish? Are you going to get that article done? Mm -hmm. So that's where, that's where it came from. It was really from my heart. It was for class. And then they got together and said, can you please, please get this out to other people? So mm -hmm. it went viral. It was the number one article for the year for Inside Higher Ed. And I had 200 emails, over 200 actually, from around the world, wow. around the world that said, thank you for saying what I couldn't say. Mm -hmm. And I kept every single one of them and wrote back to every single one. They deserved it. Wow. So it was a big, that was a pivotal moment in my career, that little article that I wrote in like two days as a love letter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I know that, I mean, even though we're in the humanities and that can be very different than going to graduate school in other fields, um, like my fiance is in um, psychology and he read the article, I showed it to him, and he was like, all of this is true. <laughs> you know, and he's not in academia, so he hasn't kind of lived through some of the resenting change and stuff like that although that's in other areas of research as well so yeah i think it it hit a, the nail right on the head that article yeah and it's sad to me jenna it's like why has it never been written or said before mm. and i get to the point that you know i'm safe i'm full professor i'm stuff and that i'm able to say it i would really love some of the emails that i had i need to go back and say you need to tell your story because mm -hmm. it's, it's really, really powerful that we have to stop this cycle of power, you know, to where students mm -hmm. don't feel like they can share that, whether it's in our classroom, whether we're teaching undergrads. And, mm -hmm. and it, I meant for it to be a positive thing. I know some of it felt a little dark, but at the end, where am I glad I became an academic? A thousand percent. I love what mm -hmm. I do. But I know, and this is what I say, I could have saved years of anxiety, disappointment, self-doubt and frustration if someone had just told me this may happen. No one prepared me. I was, I was the best scholar, but the day-to-day -day interactions, not so much. So I hope, it, I hope it made people change. I know pedagogy classes around the country read this article now in their pedagogy class, mm -hmm. which is really, 
I don't know. You just see, you don't know the power of what you might write. And then not just in, not just in music theory, like, right. like you were saying, Jen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that power, power dynamic is something that we don't think about. And it's interesting mm-hmm. once you get to a position of like, you know, a professor or something like that, you don't actually realize that you have that power because you kind of still feel like a grad student mm-hmm. in some ways, yeah. uh, but you do, you have that power. Once you become a teacher of someone else, uh, you have that, that kind of good or bad potential there in, in how you kind of wield that control. Exactly. And you, when you have that power, I don't know if I said that here um, in the article, but when you have that power, you have two choices. And I know I'm in administration. This sounds like administrative talk. You can use that power for good or you can use it for not so good. Mm-hmm. And that's a choice. That's a choice. So when I started here, I set my faculty down um, that I oversee and I said, I work for you. And they were just shocked. I was like, I'm here to help you to do your job better. And that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And it's created an atmosphere of safety and thrive, thriving you know, artists and scholars, just because you, you have a choice, I think. Mm-hmm. I think you do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one thing that I've kind of made a priority with my position as supervising TFs is going in and giving them feedback, you know, every time, every semester, going in and really thinking about what was the lesson you presented, you know, how did you engage students? And I think sometimes they think it, they have to teach like the perfect lesson, you know, when I come or like, when's the perfect time for me to come? And I'm like, well, I, you know, would love to see you make mistakes or like try something because then, you know, I can really give some feedback. Maybe I can learn something from it, you know, but like overall, like they're so afraid of like failing in front of me sometimes you know and i'm like have to purposefully like intentionally be like it is okay you do not have to teach the perfect lesson in fact i have never taught a perfect lesson you know and like be really intentional about that so that like it's a super safe environment for the students in their class but also you know the teacher if they're if they're getting observed if i'm trying to give them feedback you know being like super intentional about that relationship like i'm ultimately here to support you i'm not trying to like you know critique you and say oh i'm the best teacher and you need to do this now you know it's just genuinely hear my thoughts and what you just did that's right Take that and we should and do try that it again next time and we should do that for each other all the time i mean Absolutely. i i really think whether we're writing and sharing i mean just think about some things we've written that we haven't shared because we're worried about what people may say about it i mean i don't know i just when i mm-hmm. when i read that when i go back and read that article about about you know that we as full professors and professors and graduate students we got to look out for each other no matter where we are and and share the realities of this but also share your failures you know like you were saying i think that that ben it's like it's like this didn't always go easy and here's something that really was bad for me in the class like the time and i'll admit this right now in dope doctors there was a class that i taught an eight o'clock freshman theory class and it was so terrible, I picked up my books and I walked out. Jenny Snodgrass walked out of a class. <laughs> Am I proud? No. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> well, I mean, I will confess I taught an oral skills too one time where um, I made a mistake at the piano every single day. Like every single time I would try to play something for them, I would play a wrong note or a wrong rhythm and I'd have to start over. And it got to be like a complex in my head. And I taught the same the same class, like another section of the same class one hour earlier. And I never had to repeat anything the whole semester. But the second section, I would play something wrong every day. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're test days. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. On their test days, I would be like sweating it out because you don't want to play stuff wrong on an oral skills test. Now, now, let's be honest. If we're being real, my friends here, if we're being real, like, have we ever like played a wrong note and then just changed it in the dictation? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. One hundred percent. Or a wrong me, rhythm. It's usually or, five yes. versus five, seven. <laughs> like, oh, I put the seventh mm-hmm. in. Oh, no. Okay. Well, that's going on the key. key. <laughs> uh-huh. That's right. That's right. Oh my gosh. Yep. So many times. So many times. But the thing is, we are so used to, 
like being good and being praised. I feel like academia, the people that go into academia, go into grad school, go are, are good at school. They're used mm-hmm. to being told they're smart, they're talented, they're excellent, and they expect that to just kind of keep on going, right? And even when they hear, well, it's hard, or it's, you know, the odds are stacked against you, we've been told that we're special, we're talented, we're gifted, we're smart so much that we believe mm-hmm. that we're going to be the exception every single time. And I feel like that just really sets folks up for, and myself included, like, a lot of disappointment at times because you do find out that you aren't smart enough or you aren't talented enough or you know you maybe you are but you don't get the lucky breaks that other folks do and so there's so many things that go into it and it's i think it's part of it is the the people that go into this like us have those kind of um kind of inner voices inside of us that propel us to think that we can Mm -hmm. overcome things and so we also then put up with a lot of crap from people right we put up a lot with a lot of mistreatment because you know we believe if we pay our dues we will we'll make it to where those people are and then we can Mm -hmm. put crap on other people yeah trying to keep it pg here yep that was good (laughs) well and it can be hard to let go of some of those like well I had to go through that, you know, so right. so why shouldn't you have to go through that qualifying exams or whatever it is that was a, a hurdle or a challenge. But I'm just about all about removing those now. And Ben, I loved what you said about observing and you learning things from your TFs. That happens to me all the time. I always tell my adjuncts, I observe them, you know, fairly often. I tell them, you're welcome in my classroom anytime. Come give me feedback. Tell me something you've done that you think would work better than what I'm doing. Um, and I will take tricks from what they're doing all the time into my own classroom. Be like, Hey, I saw this in oral skills. It's really working. So we're going to try it in here as well. You know, those kinds of things. So now one of the things, um, that struck me when you're talking about the difference between, uh, private institutions and public institutions is the red tape. Um, Jen and I have experienced that because we both were up for promotion and Jen at a mm-hmm. private school, her promotion took her what, two or one, three months? One, one month? yeah, it was one semester basically. Like okay. I submitted on the first, I submitted on the first day of the semester, and I was promoted on like November seventh or something. So yeah. I, I went up for promotion. <laughs> I think mid, uh, I sent my first document in middle of August. I finally got the uh, approval from the uh, chancellor and board of regents in may <laughs> and so like that's a long year to wait that's a long year to wait i mean you have little year, benchmarks yeah. but i'm like oh my gosh and jen's like hey i'm full and i'm like I'm still in the pipeline still in the pipeline <laughs> to get associate but um right and ben you're you're going through a promotion right now and so i guess one question that um i would have for you is you know as you know if if you're fortunate i mean we'll use scare quotes fortunate enough to uh, be at a university full-time in some type of position where there is promotion, um, you might find yourself moving from, you know, uh, you know, a faculty position where you're teaching to more administrative work, like kind of how you're finding. Um, what advice do you have for faculty who uh, might be contemplating that or maybe mm. not necessarily contemplating that but kind of forced into it or like encouraged to go into those directions at the university where you're at they're, they're at well i tell you one of the best things i did and it's gonna it'll be in that article that i was in a group um, about a week and a half week and a half a year and a half ago um, where we went through a book called the peak performing professor and it's mm. called uh, the peak performing professor um, a guide to productivity and happiness or something that allowed me through step-by-step to write out my personal purpose and my personal mission statement as a university member in whatever ways. And when I laid all that out, when I wrote my purpose out, it says in there, knowing your purpose and mission leads to easy yeses and strong no's. Mm -hmm. So anything that came through my email to ask me to do, I looked, because I had it pasted, I looked at that purpose statement and I said, does this match my purpose and mission statement? And if it didn't, the answer was no. Now I know, I know I'm to the point in my career where I'm able to do that, I get it. But but that's that was 
just amazing for me to write it out. So I guess the advice is, is to, is to look into those strengths and to really see why you're doing it. Like if somebody's, if opportunities knock and you're like, how would I do this? How could I go into admin when, you know, teaching or how could I be an admin and want to go back to teaching? But know your why. I say this all the time. It keeps going back what I did back to the first episode, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, know your why. Like know why. Know why you're making some of these decisions. And so some of my advice is to just just keep it real with yourself. Don't worry about what your dissertation advisor thinks. Don't think about what your field may think. You know, think about what's going to bring some productivity and contentment to your life. If we learn anything during the pandemic, I think it's a little bit more about priorities and what matters and what doesn't matter the same. So my advice is to to get a core group of friends, know your why, know your strengths, write them down, write them down again. And if you can see yourself fitting into a different kind of mold, you know, try it out. I mean, I think about when I wrote my dissertation, I may have said this in in episode one, but like wrote my dissertation, I was basically told do not write a dissertation that is pedagogy focused, Mm -hmm. you know, and I wrote a software program and I did all that for my PhD and sold my software the week after I graduated. And, and I just, I just stuck with what I loved and wrote about what I loved and was a hundred percent invested in it. So don't make decisions based on somebody else. I have this here. I'll show it. Um, my, we do like strength finders and stuff. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. And one of mine is, and I found this out in this process about trying to figure out if I wanted to come here is I'm called a maximizer. Mm-hmm. And when you look up what that means, I mean, it's Jenny Snodgrass. It's someone <laughs> that sees something good and wants it to be better. Exhausting. Yeah. For some people, but that's, that's when I knew, okay. I can be a pretty decent administrator, but I was not willing to give up teaching. And that's what I can have at a private school that I might not have been able to have Mm -hmm. where I was at Mm -hmm. to do both. Yeah. Now I'm just teaching faculty, like I'm mentoring faculty and teaching students. But that's really To me, I'm like, that's the perfect Jenny Snodgrass job. (laughs) Like if I was going to, if I was going to pick somebody to like oversee faculty and then teach some theory classes, I would pick you. <laughs> like, Thank that's you. The, that's the perfect Jenny and, and I have a Dolly Parton poster up in my office because she records <laughs> right down the street. I mean, win-win for me. Yeah, <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I was going to comment about the easy yes and the strong no. That is something mm. that I definitely need. I'm one of those people that has a really hard time saying no to people. If anybody comes into my office... I just want to help them so bad that I will pretty much say yes to anything. And then my calendar, you know, the next week just fills up like crazy. And then I feel like at, on Friday, I just can barely keep my head above water. So and that I'm definitely going to do this. And writing it out and posting it up. And when somebody would ask me to do something or be on a committee or, or whatever, you know, or a student wanted me to be their mentor, I would look over there and I'd go, nope. <laughs> And, but it was hard. I mean, it took a lot. It took months for me to write my purpose and mission mm-hmm. statement. Months mm-hmm. to get it to where I felt like, yep, that's me. And I might not like it all. I didn't like the fight. I really didn't understand. I wouldn't say I didn't like. When I wrote it out, my mission statement, the first word was leader. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> teacher was the second word. Yeah, I, we've been doing some uh, reading of Enneagram studies, which is you know, oh, a yeah. similar type of uh, personality type of thing. And one of the things that uh, they, they talk about is that you often don't like your number. Like there are things about your number or your if strength finder that, you know, you're like, oh, I don't like that about myself. I, I, would, I, don't, I would rather not be this. I would rather right. be something else. But that yeah. you can't change that, right? So you have to kind of grow into those things that you are, right? Yeah. Yep, Absolutely. It's good for our students to see that too. Bring it back to the students. Sure. I, I think it's, I think it's fine, and well, even more than fine. Well, you know, here I got students that want to be an artist manager. They go do an internship and they fall in love with, um, you know, music publishing and copyright. 
And they're like, but I came to be an artist. And I'm like, but that's, that's fine. That's great. That's what experience and, and doing these things, that's what the point is. That's why you're in school, to figure out where you can do your best work. So what would you say to someone who's fully tenured, maybe even full professor, who's not interested in being an administrator, but doesn't want to be stagnant in their career? What can mm, they do? Absolutely. Just hang out with your younger faculty. Hang out with the junior faculty. Hang out with your graduate students. Get ideas. You know, have a, have a topic of the week or whatever and go out for a cup of coffee and say, what's happening in your classroom? Because I don't think, I think one of the things we do for those of us that have been at this long, we just kind of get stagnant and how, you know, and just do the same thing and everybody looks to us and, and that kind of thing. And it just, it's so incredible to sit down with a group of graduate students at a conference and say, tell us what's going on. Tell me about your research area. What do you see that's missing in the field? Hmm. You know, what is an area that I can help champion as someone that's been in it a little bit longer? So, I think it's a matter of listening and learning. And, you know, we ask our students to be lifelong learners. We have to do the same thing. Read a lot. Go to papers at conferences that you're like, I might not be interested in this, but let me go check it out. You just don't know. Never yeah. stop learning. Well, and everything you just said is leadership in its own way. You don't have to be an administrator to be a leader. No. So, yeah. Yeah. You can still Use develop voice those skills. For good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of saying yes to everything that comes my way, faculty burnout, uh, very relatable <laughs> to probably oh, there's several the listeners. Nice. There it is. There I it saw is, it on Facebook just two days ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, there's another, just came out. another yeah. thing to put on the uh, questions for Jenny in a few days. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I just... Yeah. I have to ask. I, I really want to know. Obviously, I have not read it. It's pretty pretty hot off the press. No pun intended with burnout there. But <laughs> what what do we need to know? You know what what are the <clears throat> what are the things that we can do for ourselves, or what are the things we should be telling our administrators? You know, now that you've had a little bit of you know toe in the water administratively. What are the things we can ask for? Because I personally, I will tell you straight up that I am afraid to ask my administrators things sometimes that would actually really help my life and my self-care. But I, I back down and I, I disintegrate into a pile of sand when confronted with a situation like that. Well, I, I think one of the biggest things for me is the sense of community. I think the burnout stories and the people that I really have worked with that I truly feel that are in burnout mode um, are, are people that kind of don't tell anybody I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm struggling mm -hmm. with this. Can you help me? Whether it's, it doesn't even have to be a chair or a dean or anybody. It can just be a, a friend, you know, or a colleague mm -hmm. that you say, hey, like this is too much. You know, let me, let me figure out what I can do. I think for me... Um, the goal, and I, I think I've talked to people about this before, like there are a lot of goals we set for ourselves as those in academia that, you know, are long-term goals, write a book, get a major grant, you know, win a teaching award. Those are, mm -hmm. those are big goals. And I think we forget sometimes to set these little goals, like I'm going to write three pages today, or by Friday, I'm going to develop a new section B on a test that I gave. Now, don't now, I'm going to give the section A that I taught five years ago, but I'm going to put something new, like baby steps. And then mm -hmm. this might be where I think we miss the mark. We don't reward ourselves for that, for the little ones. Like you get a, you get a, a promotion, yeah, your family's going to take you out to dinner. You get, you know, a major publication, you're going to post it on social media because you're so proud. But fixing that section B on a test that's been sitting there that's been wrong for two years, do you, you following me? So. Yeah. And the little goals, things are, are rewards are they're silly for me, but it's helped me so much. If I fix that, then I get to go take a walk for ten minutes. If I fix that and get that for here, like if I get my agenda up for our faculty meeting on Tuesday, then I get to go get a cup of Starbucks coffee. Like that's what works for me are these little, little to do goals, and I write them out, and that is what 
has saved me. Big goals are on a big sheet of paper, little goals are on these little sheets of paper, and I cross them out, whether they're on my Google to-do or wherever, I cross them out. And so I can look back. Crossing them out, I can still see them. And i like, wow, I did a lot today. Or I did a lot last week. Or I got so much accomplished in September because what we do, we're like, big goals. All I can focus on is big things. And then sometimes they're unattainable, right? Mm-hmm. So reward yourself for the little moments. And Absolutely. that's really saved me. The relationship, talking to somebody when it was getting hard mm-hmm. and rewarding yourself. And then finally, and I know I preach this all the time, going back to that purpose statement and saying no. I know it's hard. It's really hard when you're starting out, but you can't do all things for all people and do all things great. Yeah. You'll burn Jenny, out. I've, this episode feels like therapy for me, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I need I needed all of this said to me, but I was like fully in burnout when we started the pandemic. <laughs> Uh, just like fully there. And so I can't even begin to tell you how bad it was by the time we were like returning to the classroom and all yeah. of those things from having to learn all these new skills in order to teach online and all those things. But also the pandemic gave me a lot of perspective, like you said, about um, what is important. And there are many, many things in my life that have changed as well in the last two years that are very different than they were before. But I don't know if you've read Emily Nagoski's book, Burnout. Um, Mm. If you haven't, it's really good. Yeah. Um, But just the idea of getting like getting the tension, getting the stress, getting all those big deadlines that you haven't met yet or all those big projects that you can't finish yet, getting all of that like out of your body every day by being active, by, you know, doing things like rewarding yourself, um, being kind to yourself. All of those things are really important regularly taking care of yourself there's a i think it's somewhere in one of the chapters in that book where she talks about um like self-care is not a bubble bath self-care is like parenting yourself and saying no when you know that you don't have the time or self-care is saying you know i have to do this poorly because i don't have the time to do it well and if my only Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's all really useful stuff. And I think sometimes guys don't take this the wrong way. Guys suffer from just as much stress and burnout as we do. But I think sometimes um, women in universities, especially if you're if there are fewer of us, then we end up on more committees and we end up on, you know, because because we want things to be equal. People of color struggle with the same thing. You know, administration wants everyone to be represented. And if there are fewer of us, then we end up doing more. And it just adds to that pile of things that are, you know, making everything feel challenging. So, yeah, I think I love that this book exists because (laughs) faculty burnout is really real. And from the outside of academia, a lot of times people think we don't really have that much to do. That's like this common myth about being a college professor, like, oh, you just teach one or two classes and then like you have coffee or go home or I don't know what. I'm like, no, it's nothing like that at all. So I think it's really important. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the to the article, the seven truths and a lie that you Mm -hmm. have to sell your life and sell your soul to be successful. And that's one of the things I was told. And so I think as we that represent this idea that it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. We have to model that behavior for our students. Otherwise, it's just this, just this cycle. Um, I think that big, the big thing about my three points in this, this burnout book is about leaving your office, of course, but mm. goes back to that flattery. When flattery continues by colleagues or upper administration, realize there's a chance behind the actions because it causes you to say yes more often and to listen to others' agendas rather than your own ideas. So we just have to Mm. have a check-in, you know, back to relationships, have a check-in and say, hey, I've been asked to be this. So I don't know. I've been so fortunate to have really close colleagues that kind of watch my back, and I watch theirs. Yeah. Yeah, which is sometimes a struggle when you're a theorist and you're used to being by yourself all the time, yeah. right? You're kind right. of this, in this <laughs> right. little bubble, right? right? You're used to, you don't have to collaborate. You know, we, we've been talking with folks about um, 
research and things like that and IRBs and all these things like that. And we don't have to worry about any of that. We just work in our office and maybe collaborate a little bit, but we don't have to, you know, communicate uh, to others like that. And so often we kind of think that we are our product. We are what we make, you know, if we're not making or if we're not uh, doing those things, we can really struggle with that. One of the things I found interesting was I was able to read the preface on Amazon, the, the free part. The author <laughs> of that book wrote a book about vitality and like, it's like, like being this vital professor. And then she shares in the preface how she had to, well, she ended up going to therapy because she didn't realize that she was mm. burned out. And so she had right. this very um, complicated uh, relationship with her book about, you know, being a vital professor who's, you know, living a full life and then her own real life, which was kind of in shambles, which I really appreciate that honesty that so she had honest. and willing to share that. Mm. And the stories, a lot of these stories in here are, are not, they do not use their real names. Mm. And um, it's, it's just, I mean, there's something in here for every, everybody, I think, because I think we've all, if we haven't suffered from burnout, we've been close. And you'll read a story and go, wait, did I write that? Did I turn that in? Because, you know, that's my story. So I think it's, you know, it's just out. And I was really thrilled to be a part of it. But it's just, it's just amazing how, how, especially during the pandemic, how tired we all were. So mm-hmm. tired. And then our students were tired. And bringing it back to classroom teaching, like, the amount of energy I had to put in my teaching, physical energy to yes. bring that engagement of what worked so well three years ago, mm-hmm. like it was exhausting. Mm-hmm. And yep. it's better now, but those two years on Zoom, you know, all the cameras are off, all the, and you're like, all right, spell me a dominant seventh chord on the key of G, and it's like nothing. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Relating. Mm-hmm. Oh, so totally. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think I did a I did a, a little presentation about teaching online. It was called "Good Morning Rectangles" because it was like you're just speaking to a bunch of rectangles. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, um, but like bringing it back to students, I think is a really good thing too because, at least for me, our my students are so much more aware of their own energy levels, their own burnout levels. I mean, they are aware of self-care. Like I never was when I was in college, like you just power through. Right. And so what, what do you say? I guess there's kind of two parts I have for this question is what do you say to, um, to the students, um, that are experiencing burnout in your own class and how do you encourage them? And, my other part is, what do you say to faculty who are kind of like, as we've talked mm. earlier, like, well, I had to do this. I had to, you know, mm. pull myself up and, you know, deal with all this uh, stuff. I didn't have to worry about self-care. And now I have all these students saying they're struggling. What do you say to those professors who are maybe hesitant to acknowledge the struggles that their students might really be going through? And you don't have to name names. You can. I'm not. But I'll start with the second part when faculty say, but I had to do it. And I always, my always response, because I do get that. It's like, well, did you enjoy it? <laughs> did, <laughs> did it help you to be a better, better teacher or scholar right. or musician? I, and they're like, well, no. And then I'm like, stop the cycle. I mean, mm. stop it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that is my response. That is a very short answer, but that's actually worked. Paul, when I was like, was that a good time? Did that help for your educational experience? <laughs> right. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, when I think back, just some of the things that, that the amount of hours I put in, like for my assistantship, let's say that, for my assistantship, and it was way over what my contract was, and I was mm-hmm. doing things that had nothing to do with my assistantship, right? But I never would question it. I just did it because that's what you did. Well, let's just, let's make it a thing that we're going to follow contracts because that's what it should be in real life. Just because yes. they're graduate students, don't treat them differently. You know? Yep. So as far as what I tell my students that are, are dealing with some of these, um, you know, dealing with, a, with it a lot. You know, a lot of my students are working, which, you know, and have jobs <clears throat> outside of school. And, um, you know, I waited tables through college. So I'm really, I'm kind of grateful in some ways I did that. 
And I, I tell them, I have two more years till my loans are paid off. And they look at me in horror. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't regret it. You know, I don't regret it. And I did work my way through school. But I also think that um, for students that they have to realize how much they can take before they A, break, or B, quit loving music. And I don't want it to get that point. So sometimes we just have these conversations of, of, you know, if you dropped one class, what would you do with that extra three hours? Or if you, if you cut back, most of them can't cut back on work. And that seems to be a universal thing where more students are working off campus. But if you cut back, you're in four ensembles and you're only required to be in two. Could we cut you down to three? They're so worried about what their applied professor would say. And I'm like, well, let's have the conversation. I'll go with you if you feel better about that. I think they just sometimes need someone to give them an out. Mm -hmm. You know, and to say, it's okay if you drop an ensemble. It's okay to drop a class. Because otherwise, is it good for you to stay in oil skills too and barely pass with a C? Or to drop it and then take it next semester, start fresh, and end with a pretty good B+. Plus? Right. I just think they, I, I just think students and, and us as faculty, we just haven't given ourselves enough, let's just grace and time to say, hey, this is too much because mm -hmm. we're always trying to prove ourselves. Think about it. Think about it as musicians, especially us that started so early, like playing in piano guild or our solo and ensemble. Like we're talking sixth grade. You started mm -hmm. to be judged. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And no one gave you an out. They were just there to tell you it wasn't good enough. There's yep. a lot of people like that. So those would be my two things. Tell the faculty, did you enjoy it? And tell the students, what can I do to make this better for you? Here's some options. Like have options for them. Yeah, I love that. Great. I think too inherent in a lot of what we've just said is this idea of like acknowledging it in yourself. Like when you said um, at the very beginning of the conversation about burnout, you said about telling someone else, like just letting someone else in on that information. And when you said that, I thought it took me a long time to tell myself <laughs> like, hey, you're burned out. It's yeah. not going well. You're not doing okay. Right. <laughs> like, right. you're letting on to everybody that you are and to yourself that you are, but you are not. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is just acknowledging it. And if the student has come to say, I'm having a hard time and I don't know what to do, like, they've already taken that critical first step of recognizing it and seeing it and asking someone for help. Right. So it's a right. big deal. Absolutely. It's a big deal. Well, you are our 50th guest, <laughs> and so, actually not 50th guest, this is the 50th episode, we'll say you're a 50th guest too, um, <laughs> but you're also, you have, the, you have a pulse on what's going on all over the place, music theory, mm -hmm. higher ed, you know what's going on, so we want you to put your Nostradamus hat on just for a little bit, <laughs> and tell us what you see in the future for music theory instruction? What do you see heading down the road in the next 10 to 20 years? What's gonna be the thing that is maybe different or where you see it going that is exciting? Cause let's get, we're gonna stay positive, all right? We were gonna stay positive about the future. It's great, the future's great. Like I'm not, I'm not scared. <laughs> I'm a person that thrives on change, obviously. So um, I think we're, we're, we're already doing some of it. I think incorporating of a new literature, I think we're, you know, that's been going on for years now. I think the idea of, um, of experience in the music classroom, like playing and improvisation, bringing your instruments to class, so many people are doing that and taking it to the next level of being creative in the music theory classroom, whether that's through composition, guided composition, guided improvisation, um, undergraduate research and you know even going into the more commercial fields I know that's where I'm at now but with songwriting and jingles and and getting that and creating something that these students are really proud of that may can turn into something I mm -hmm. I think students now really want to know how it applies to them um, so I can you know from a music education standpoint you know the idea of the doll and the recording and how many music ed students I have that or like, I need to record my band. Like, I need that in a class. Well, I think we're gonna have, we learned how to use a lot of that during COVID, but I think the recording side of things, we're gonna be doing more about multi-tracks and stuff in theory classrooms. 
I really do think, because mm -hmm. students are coming in, you know, as their own little mini producers, regardless of the instrument we play, even if they're, you know, viola player, they're like, hey, I put my viola with this cool loop, you know, and mm -hmm. that's something I never would have thought of because you don't need to be in a studio anymore. Like these right. students can buy a great microphone and, and create, and they want to create. Mm -hmm. So if we take that away in the music theory classroom, that creative thing, I think we're going to lose them because that's what they've been doing for the past couple of years. So I think that's a big thing for theory. I have a passion for public music theory um, over the past couple of years and getting some of the ideas and conversations out of just academia. So when I, you know, here in Nashville, when I go into the studios and talk to the writers and the producers and the engineers and talk about how they're using musicianship, and I want to write about that more, and I want them to feel comfortable coming to us and saying, hey, I'm struggling with this chart right here. Like, how would you approach this? And have more conversation from the academic people with and scholars to the working musicians on film, video games, popular music, country, gospel, all of it. Um, I think there's a real place for that. And um, I think music theory can be one of the disciplines that can really reach across the aisle on that. You know, just call me Jenny. They call me Jenny from the block here. Just call me Jenny. <laughs> they don't have to call me Dr. Snodgrass, these people in the industry, you know, because again, they have 15 Grammys and I'm like the only PD person without a Wikipedia page. That's cool. <laughs> okay, we need to change that. You need to have yeah. a Wikipedia page. Oh, no, no, just kidding, here. just kidding. But what was the other question? Oh, I, I mean, question? I think kind of expanding it out I think the natural oh, progression right. is to think just higher ed, you know, mm. where do you see higher ed um, going? And let's keep that positive, too. I see. I don't have any trouble being positive about it, because I think <laughs> I think there's so many problems in some ways that mm. it can only get better by people sharing their voices or or figuring out the place they need to be where they feel like they can share their voice. Let's say it that way. Mm -hmm. So I think in higher ed, I think as, um, as leadership changes, I think, that, I think the idea of community, of people, of listening and of value is gonna happen. I don't think we're there yet. I think we have a long way to go. That's why I can be positive, because I think it will happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think sometimes this is a this is a hard question because I think that sometimes we can get caught up in in the idea of everything that's wrong you know and we're not getting this and we're not getting that and get back to why we're here we're here for the students mm -hmm. and every decision that we make has got to go back to that in some way is this decision that I'm making about should this event come to campus good for the students is me adding another section and having to work with the budget to get that section taught. Is that best for the student? Whatever I have to do, that goes back to my mind, that's me. Is it going to help my faculty teach better, do better, learn better? It's gonna help my students learn better, play better. So I think it's coming. I think it's coming. That's a really tough question because we're not there. Mm -hmm. But I think we will get to that sense of community because we lost it for two years yeah. and people are craving it. Mm -hmm. So we need leaders, if anybody's listening, think about going into administration. We need leaders that are not about self, that are about others, because that's what we are in the classroom. That's good teaching. So there's a reason I think that I'm here, you know, to, and I think that might be my next thing. I'm training up and teaching the next leaders so well let us know when those classes are offered and when we can enroll <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you do long distance learning <laughs> yeah <laughs> i feel another book coming i feel another book yeah well we always do like to end with some rapid fire questions and usually they're related to music theory which i think <laughs> we should get back to because th those are your roots you know 
Yes. Jenny from the and block. And I love Jenny from the block. Music theory. Teaching and music so, theory. Still love it. <laughs> so, Jen or Ben, do you have any rapid fire music theory questions for Jenny from the block? I have mine. I'm ready. Okay, go for it. All right. So I'm going back to the very beginning of our conversation today. You said you're walking down the street and you're sitting in on a producer producing uh -huh. a recording session. From those experiences, what do we need to be doing in oral skills that we are not doing? Very great question. Um, a hundred percent about harmonizing over a melody, like being able to hear mm. a melody and not only do like, okay, here's the Roman numerals that could go with it, but just harmonizing a counterpoint line on the spot with that melody. Mm. That involves a little bit of understanding musicianship and music literacy, but also mm -hmm. a little bit of improvisation, a little bit of safety to be totally wrong. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great. Ben? Gosh, I don't know. There's so many things I could ask. <laughs> I would say... Mm. <sighs> All right, I'll, I'll ask my I guess this then. really was therapy. <laughs> I have like four different things that Ben's I'm trying working to through a lot between. of stuff. I'm sorry, I'm, I ruminate on things. This is a strength and a weakness of mine. Both are the same. Go ahead, Paul. Give me a, right. give me a one minute. Okay, so, um, so my question is... Uh, first day of class, first day of theory class, what's your first thing you do with your students? Sing and play. Music of some starts. Sort, just, yeah, music started. Um, it's, we just, I put on a song and we just do something to it. I don't care whether we're singing the bass lines to it, it depends on the class, or if I'm clapping on the rhythms on it, I'm trying to think about what what I did here, I did some, um, uh, got their musical taste before, mm -hmm. before the mm -hmm. first day class. So started playing it and said, what are you hearing about this song that made it such a hit? Like, orally. Mm. So I think some sort of musical experience before I open a textbook, before I write anything in the board while they're participating. That's great. Because we are teaching music, of course. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we forget. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> All right, Ben, did you figure something out? I've got, I've got mine. I, I went through a lot of different options in my head, and I've got one that I really feel strongly that I want to know Jenny's answer to, which is, in your opinion, is it possible to have a successful musical experience in RL skills entirely online, asynchronously? Is that possible? Or is it something Oof. that we should completely avoid? Well, Ben, well, well, we'll pick that up on the next episode, on episode no, 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 100 no, no. Thinking, with Jenny Stodgrass. No, I'm thinking, episode 100. I'm thinking, I think, I think as long as there is some sort, it would be very difficult, and you have to be an absolutely master teacher and very purposeful mm. in how you lay it out. There has to be an oral skills some sort of experiential playing around. It cannot be, for me, you asked my opinion, it can't be a dictation class. It can, absolutely cannot be. Mm -hmm. It cannot just be sing this melody. No, it cannot be just that. It has to be them internalizing these skills through doing. Mm -hmm. And it would have to, asynchronous is a little tough. So um, constant communication with that instructor to where you'd have to put in technology and some tracks and stuff. So you're implementing some of that togetherness community oral skills. I mean, it's not just singing in class that I'm talking about. It's, it's about, it's about knowing, knowing that you're off mm -hmm. and knowing that you need to fix something without touching your instrument. However, however, what I learned during COVID about oral skills is that there is a skill in transcription projects where they need to use their instrument. And that is part of a skill that I need to teach more mm. is about how to get through transcriptions using instrument and how to get through dictations and small transcriptions without. I will never go mm. back to just one or the other. Mm. That was a hard one. Cause I love you had that. To, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. It's a good one. Yeah. 
That's very good. So as we're as we're wrapping up, uh, maybe you can let our listeners know, you know, what is coming up next. You already mentioned a couple books maybe coming out, and you have an article. <laughs> well, that'll already already be out probably by the time this uh, this comes out. Uh, but what else do you have going on? And where can people find you? That's the other question. So where can people reach out to you? You can find me two miles from Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> in the middle of all the recording studios and session writers, as well as all my great classical musicians. Now I'm at Lipscomb University here um, in Nashville, Tennessee, and everyone is welcome to email me there at jenny.snodgrass at lipscomb.edu, or just come watch what's happening. Um, I would love for more and more of my music theory friends to come to Nashville, let me take you into these studios. I got kicked out by Blake Shelton the other week. I'll make sure he's not there. And, um, and to go see how these how these musicians are using this. So I think my next main goal is to do the third edition of Contemporary Musicianship, which is going to be a whole lot easier instead of driving <laughs> back and forth, um, and to work on this public music theory idea with the writers and the session players here in Nashville. Like, how do I know that producer? How can I listen to a song and know that's that producer? Like, what are they doing while they're listening to make that song have that stamp. So that might be coming. So from the music side, I also just feel like I have been placed in something where I can really mentor people that may want to go into administration. It's not where I thought I'd be, but I'm a lot happier than I thought I'd be at it. And um, I want to write about the realities of how to be a good leader, a servant leader, and a teacher leader. I will never, ever, ever give up my time in the classroom. It's part of who I am. So um, I want to continue to teach, and that's across the board now. That's your why. 100%, right? You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening. <laughs>